I invite you to open your Bibles as we conclude a series today on popular deceptions of our age to Genesis chapter 2. It is amazing, if you've been with us, how much we keep going back to Genesis 2 to combat a number of the popular deceptions of our age. And there's a reason for that. Because so much groundwork is laid out in Genesis. And that is why if you take the early chapters and somehow turn them into myth or allegory or something other than historical narrative prose, you end up undermining so much in the Bible. Genesis chapter 2, the goal of our series, Popular Deceptions of Our Age, has been to look at some of the most pernicious and evil deceptions, moral, spiritual deceptions, that have infiltrated our culture on so many levels. These have infiltrated other cultures, but we are specifically looking at the American context. These are deceptions that are directly at odds with what God has said in the Bible, which is why we are taking aim at them. Deceptions that have infiltrated the news media, the public school system, social media, colleges and universities, even many professing Christian colleges and universities, sadly, even many churches and seminaries. Let me put up a list just to remind us where we have been. We looked at the first week, the decept, all of these are stated in a way that the deception is stated in the positive, that the early chapters of Genesis are myth, and we took that myth apart, so to speak. And then the, God is not a God of wrath, and we looked at that and deconstructed it from Scripture. And then the myth that we can choose our own gender and identity, one of the hottest of hot buttons right now in Western culture. And then we looked at that suffering disproves there's a loving God. And we took that myth apart. And then the deception that all religions are the same to God. The old mantra, doesn't matter what you believe as long as you're sincere. And we, say, we saw why that is unbiblical and dangerous. We looked at the deception that Jesus said nothing about homosexuality. I even saw someone apply that to abortion this last week on the news. That Well, Jesus said nothing about abortion. He never mentioned the word. And so, therefore, he must have not had an opinion on it. Well, that's fallacious. We saw even about homosexuality because Jesus affirmed all of Scripture very clearly, especially in Matthew chapter 5 in the Sermon on the Mount. And then, unborn baby is not a human life, specifically looking at the sanctity of life and abortion and the myth that it's somehow a hum- uh, an unborn baby isn't fully human. Last weekend, we looked at the myth that the God of the Old Testament is simply a vindictive bully, and we saw numerous examples of God's grace and mercy. Some of the most profound, by the way, in the Bible are in the Hebrew Scriptures. And today, we're going to look at one that will certainly have our attention, that somehow the the Bible is against sex and sexual pleasure, which is a widespread myth. It's a deception that comes out all over the place in Western culture, and especially in American culture, in social media, pop music, in Hollywood, whether Billy Joel's old classic, Only the Good Die Young, or the movie Footloose, it was recently redone in the last several years. This comes out everywhere. And one of the reasons the deception has traction in our culture, that the Bible is somehow against sexual pleasure, is because there has been a massive shift in the area of sex and sexuality in Western culture in the last, say, 75 to 100 years. Contemporary Western culture, and I'm going to just pick on America here, exalts and romanticizes sex in a way that is virtually unheard of in ancient cultures, making it the defining point of who we are as a human being. 
And it's been driven over the last 50, 75, 100 years by leading thinkers, secularists, most of them atheists, like Freud or Foucault. And the result is we live in a culture today that puts sex as an idol in a way that no culture ever has. It's not that other cultures didn't have sexuality and sexual perversion and sexual immorality, but it was never exalted in a way that it became the defining point of human identity as it has today. And in the midst of all this, unfortunately, not only did the culture get swept along, but a lot of God's people get swept along and somehow end up with the assumption, even if it's kind of buried in their thinking, that somehow the Bible is against sexual pleasure and intimacy. So to help us take this apart, unpack it, deconstruct it, I want to look at three things this morning. They're in your outline if you picked up one. Number one, we're going to go back to Genesis and look at God's design for sexual intimacy. We have to begin there. With so much confusion today, it is imperative that the church give a clear word about sex and that it goes back to the scriptures for that word. Otherwise, we're freelancing it and we're going to end off in dangerous territory destroying lives. So we're going to look at God's original design for sexuality. Secondly, how Jesus reinforced that design in Matthew 19. And then thirdly, how Paul goes one step further and compares marriage to the gospel, and we will see that. So we're going to spend our time today in Genesis 2, Matthew 19, and Ephesians 5. That is our trajectory. And then we will, Lord willing, land the plane. First of all, God's design for sexual intimacy, Genesis 2. Genesis tells us the fascinating story of the creation of everything, but specifically for us today of human marriage and human sexuality. And here is the headline story coming out of Genesis 1 and 2 when it comes to marriage and sexuality, and it is this, that sexual pleasure is something God thought up. It's his idea, and it was plan A. Now, you may be shocked <laughs> to hear that. I don't know what kind of a church you grew up in or what kind of experiences you have had or have not had, but depending on pain or divorce, depending on abuse, depending on all sorts of factors, teaching, past teaching, or churches you've been in, that may shock you. But it's very clear when you go to the text of Genesis that sexual pleasure is something that God thought up. This is not something the devil thought up. This comes from God, a holy God, and it came before sin entered the world, contrary Augustine. We'll get to that in a minute. This was created when the world was still perfect and pristine. That is the value on it. And it is so holy, speaking of sexual intimacy, and so powerful, it is only to be used in the context and confines of marriage between a biological male and a biological female. It seems like every week when I preach, you got to keep adding more qualifiers on all this because of the crazy moral revolution we're in. I want to pick up with verse 18, chapter 2, verse 18. Genesis 2, 18, where we read this. The Lord God said, it is not good for man to be alone. So aloneness isn't good for human beings. And I will make a helper suitable for him. If you go back to chapter 1, verse 27 for just a moment, a verse we have consulted many times in this series, 
Genesis 1.27, so God created mankind in his image. In the image of God, he created them, interesting plural there, male and female, he created them. So we have seen all along, there are only two genders, male and female. God decides gender, not us. And the whole transgender revolution is nothing more than rebellion against God's created natural order. Now, it's interesting uh, to notice all the way up to chapter 2, verse 18, which we just read a second ago, after God created things every given day, then he says, it's good. God made this, and then it was good. And then he pronounces this good. And the very first time you read something is not good is in Genesis 2, 18. The Lord said, it is not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Some of you may know the Hebrew word for helper, etzer. Hebrew word is a very strong term. In fact, it's used as a noun here. In its noun form, this word, etzer, helper, is almost only used of God in the Old Testament. And even, by the way, in its verbal form, it's almost only used of God in the New Testament. That is how strong this word is. I was reading one Hebrew scholar this week who said it's, it, it's a little bit hard to find a, a, an English equivalent to it. Partner, he suggested kind of a strange phrase, and he admitted it was kind of strange, counterpartner. But something very strong is being said here when God calls the woman an etzer, a word almost only used of God in the Bible. In verse 18, again, God said it is not good for man to be alone. So to cure the aloneness problem, to create a helper and create and fill in the missing pieces, God then fills out the rest of the story. So I'm going to read verses 19 to 25. As I do that, keep in mind, you are reading about the very first wedding on planet Earth. And it's between a male and a female. And this is the paradigm for all time. And it's the only paradigm God recognizes. It doesn't matter what our Supreme Court says on that issue. They're wrong. And it's ungodly what they have done. It doesn't matter what any Supreme Court says, any emperor or ruler, anyone who comes along and redefines what God has said in Scripture about the family and marriage it has set themselves against God because you cannot redefine it. And what they're saying is marriage today between a man and a man or woman, woman, is not marriage. Even if that's, they say what the law says, that's not what God has said, and God does not recognize it as a marriage. Verses 19 to 25, And how the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals. They didn't evolve. God created them. And all the birds in the sky and he brought them to the man to see what he would name them. So Adam's very first task on his job description is naming all these creatures God made. Imagine that. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, all the birds, and all the wild animals. And he did it without Google or any help for the Internet. He came, we don't know how he came up with all these names. But... For Adam, for Adam, no suitable helper was found. There's our word again. So the Lord God called, 
caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and closed up the place with flesh. And then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man. And he brought her to the man. And the man said, this is now bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. And she shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. And this is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife. And they become one flesh. Your children need to leave home. <laughs> they are designed to leave home. It's a good desire for them to leave the nest. Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. We have just read about the very first wedding on planet Earth. What a scene. I mean, you got to admit, admit, this is incredible. Adam has been naming creatures all day. Vultures, giraffes, hippopotamuses, aardvarks, turtles, and all of a sudden, God puts Eve in front of them. I mean, that had to be quite a scene. After looking at creatures all day and just naming all these crazy animals, and then suddenly God puts this incredibly beautiful woman in front of him. And Adam is stunned, to say the least. Now, contrary to what St. Augustine said, and there are still five million words of Augustine online. Augustine is one of the greatest theologians in the history of the church. Still is. He always will be. On this one, he got it wrong. Because he treated so much of Genesis as allegory, especially the opening chapters, he did believe in a historical Adam and Eve, but because he treated so much of Genesis allegorically, he somehow, in the fog there, got twisted up thinking that sex was created after sin entered the world. And that's not true. All you got to do is read the text. It's very clear sexual intimacy entered the world before sin entered the world. And so the bottom line here, young people, hear this. Teenagers, young people, singles, hear this. The bottom line is that God's design for marriage and sexual intimacy is one biological male, one biological female who become one flesh within the covenant of a heterosexual marriage. That is the only design for marriage God recognizes. And it is a glorious one. God designed marriage and sexual intimacy for us to flourish if he leads us to marriage. Verse 24, I want to camp on because it is now going to be picked up in just a moment in Matthew 19 by Jesus and will be picked up again by the Apostle Paul. That's why it's so important, by the way, that we believe in a historical Adam and Eve who are the genetic biological ancestors of everybody because Jesus believed that and so did Paul. And if we somehow turn Adam into something less than a real human being, we're saying Jesus was wrong, Paul was wrong, and we have undermined the gospel. Sadly, that is going on today in many Christian colleges and seminaries. But read 24 one more time with me. This is why a man leaves his father and mother and united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Jesus will quote this. Paul will quote this. Now, before we go on, I want to take a slight diversion here, and I think this is a very important one to address something that is a very painful issue for a lot of people, for a lot of women. Studies indicate that anywhere between minimally 30 to 50% of women have had some kind of unwanted sexual experience forced on them, whether inappropriate jokes or words or sexual harassment or sexual abuse or, God forbid, even rape. 
I know working with Becky over the years and all the different people that God has brought across our path is a very real issue for God's people in any church. And there are dozens, dozens, sometimes hundreds sitting out in churches who have been the victims of this kind of stuff. And the pain is horrific. And it means that although sex is a beautiful gift, the reality is that if you've been victimized by it, it's very hard perhaps to see that. And the pain is very real when the subject even comes up. We all know that sexual abuse is the most secret of all sexual sins and inflicts untold suffering on people and the anguish on its victims. If you're a victim of sexual sin or abuse or harassment on any level as a female, just a couple of things pastorally. One, healing is really dependent minimally on three things. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this, but just to help give some encouragement and perhaps a path to walk or a pointer, three things are minimally required for healing from uh, any kind of sexual mistreatment. Number one, that supernatural aspect of it. It is vital that you are born again, have the Holy Spirit alive in you, that you have his power and resources, that you lean into your union in Christ and your identity in Christ, and that you are making good and using the disciplines God's people have used for centuries to stay connected to God. Prayer, fasting, scripture, those are so essential Involvement in a, in, a, in a local church, so vital. That's the first part, the supernatural part. Second is strong support from family and friends. A network is very critical for healing if it's going to occur. And thirdly, often professional help is very essential. And here, if you don't know where to go, to seek out an elder or a pastor to say, hey, might you recommend somebody to me? Genuine healing almost for especially for more severe sexual abuse, almost always requires telling your story to somebody else that you trust, that's competent, and that's spiritually mature and wise. With that, I want to go now to Matthew chapter 19. Jesus is going to reinforce God's design about marriage. We looked at this just a few weeks ago under the deception that somehow Jesus never thought about homosexuality, never said anything about it. Yes, he did. He affirmed the authority of all of Scripture in Matthew 5. And in Matthew 19, he goes back to the original paradigm, template for marriage, and here he's very clear about God's direction and design for human sexuality. Matthew 19, I'll be reading verses 3 to 10. What's going on here is Jesus is playing gotcha with some Pharisees. Actually, they're playing gotcha with him. They're, pl- they're trying to trap him. And in the midst of this, Jesus makes a beeline back for Genesis. It's always a good thing to do when someone's trying to trap you, theologically or biblically. Go back to the scripture. Go back to the text. What does the text say? So much of our conversation and discussion and disagreements are about what is not said in the text. And sometimes all we need to do is go back and say, well, what does the text say? The inspired text of Scripture. So, picking it up in verse 3 down to verse 10, Matthew 19. Some Pharisees came to him to test him, and they asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? They knew it wasn't. They're misusing Deuteronomy 24 here. 
Jesus says, haven't you read? He replied, in the beginning, the creator made them male and female and said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. Well, golly wally, where does he go? He goes back to Genesis chapter two. So they are no longer two but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Why then, they ask, did Moses give a command? And again, they're, they're twisting scripture here. They're abusing scripture and they're using it to try to trap him. Why did Moses give this command that a man could give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? Jesus replied. And that is there for specific conditions in Matthew 24. I mean in Deuteronomy 24. Moses permitted you, verse 8, to divorce your wives because your hearts are hard. But it was not that way from the beginning. I tell you. Now here he's going to hold up a standard of marriage that will make anyone in Western culture gasp. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for porneia, that's the Greek word used here, which is broader than adultery. We don't know exactly how broad porneia is. It covers a wide range of sexual sin. There is a Greek word for adultery that is used in the New Testament. He didn't use that. He said this word, which is broader, except for sexual sin, sexual immorality, anyone who divorces their wife except for porneia and marries someone else then they are committing adultery. That's the only out Jesus gives. And the disciples said to him, this jolted them, if that is the situation, meaning if marriage is that indissolvable, that permanent, between a husband and wife, it is better not to marry. Why would they say that? Because he took the standard and put it up where it should be, and it jolted them. Now, let me, let me suggest this. If that jolted some Jewish disciples who came from very conservative Jewish villages back in the first century, imagine how Jesus' standard, which is God's standard, jolts our secular culture today, where the main idol is self, and the highest goal in life is personal Choice and personal freedom. We hear it all the time. Over and over. We have the pop singer Nika's newest anthem. My body, my choice. She belts out. You can't dim my voice. I'll keep making noise till you understand. It's my body, my choice. There's a word for that line, and it's called rebellion. Rebellion against what God has said. Our bodies do not belong to us, Christian or not. They belong to our creator, and if we're married, they belong to our creator and our spouse. And that is what God has clearly said. One man, one woman becoming united in one flesh for lifetime, and they belong to each other. And what the Bible is showing us is that sexual intimacy then was created and designed by God to be so to speak, the permanent epoxy glue that cements two people together permanently. That is why, that is why sexual sin is so deadly. Because often in sexual sin, that permanent glue then is undone and that was never designed to be undone except by death. And so when you cement yourself to somebody and then uncement, you end up doing tremendous damage to them and to yourself. That is the great danger of sexual sin and using sexual intimacy outside of marriage. 
It's a very powerful gift. It's a very holy gift. It's a very beautiful gift. It's a very enjoyable gift. But it's designed only to be used in the covenant of marriage because it is so powerful. And so what we're being shown here is that this is God's glorious vision of sexuality. How we need to be delivered, how I need, how you need to be delivered, how we all need to be delivered from this small, worldly, culturally conditioned, self-centered, Christ-ignoring, God-neglecting, unbiblical view of sex that permeates our culture and to see the glorious vision of sexuality that God created. This now will take us to Ephesians chapter 5. And I encourage you to turn there. Hope you have your Bible, you have your finger in the text. We're going to finish up with chapter 5. So many churches and denominations that have gone off base in the moral revolution, it's because their finger is no longer on the text and their pastors and leaders no longer believe the Bible. Ephesians chapter 5. Here we come to a passage that points to one other deeper reality of what's going on in marriage and sexual intimacy. So I'm going to tell you what it is, and then we're going to read it in the text. Here's what the Apostle Paul is saying here, another layer down, and that is this, that God's design for marriage and sexual intimacy is that it would actually reflect Christ's relationship to his church. That is exactly what the Apostle Paul said. I may shock you, but that is something Paul is saying here, that it's a great mystery that two become one flesh. He's talking about marriage and sexual union and sexual intimacy, but then he's saying that was designed by God to point to something greater, and that is Christ's love for his bride, his elect, the church. And let's be honest, when you use phrases like the bride or bride, there's a lot of emotion A lot of tenderness wrapped up in that phrase. And that is Christ's terminology with his church. So let me read verses 31 and 32. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother, be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. Well, where is Paul going here? He goes back to Genesis. Now notice, he he has just held up God's template, blueprint, paradigm for marriage and sexuality, the two become one flesh. Now notice what he's going to do. He's going to say something that has not been said anywhere else. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about what? Human sexuality, the sexual union in marriage. He says, I'm talking about something else. It's pointing to something else. What is that? Christ and his church. Christ and his church. One flesh. Great mystery. Christ is church. In other words, ladies and gentlemen, young and old alike, hear this. One of the deepest purposes for marriage, according to this, is to illustrate the love Jesus has for his bride, the church. And he wants the world to see that. Another way to say it is this way, marriage is ultimately designed to reflect the gospel. Namely, that the marriage relationship and the mystery of husband and wife and the sexual union is designed to be a picture of Christ's intense love for his bride and his spiritual union with true believers. Now, again, you may be saying, wow, I've never heard anything like that. Well, that's, I'm just telling you what the text says here. In fact, the true Christian's union with Christ here is so real, so profound, and so mysterious 
that a lot of what we call the Puritans, those great theological pastoral minds two, three hundred years ago, Thomas Watson, this morning Bree read from Richard Baxter, John Flavel, John Owen, a lot of them looked at the union we have sexually as a pointer to Christ and they said it is such a real union with Christ, such a mysterious, powerful union with Christ. And because it's compared to the, to the union of a husband and wife, a lot of the Puritans described and spoke of Christ's union with the believer in terms of conjugal union between Christ and believers. That shocks most people today. But that's the kind of terminology. And specifically, they looked at like the Song of Solomon... Almost universally, the hermeneutics of the Song of Solomon among the Puritans, among most people before 100 years ago, was to see it as a compelling love allegory between Christ and his church. And there's some today that are arguing, we need to lean the needle back that direction, that there actually is something to that hermeneutic. And it is precisely because of the believer's union with Christ that Paul wants to remind us here, marriage was designed to reflect that union, and so marriage is designed to reflect the gospel. But Paul goes even further, because in Galatians he says, not only is marriage designed to reflect the gospel, marriage is designed to be fueled by the gospel. Because he says in Galatians 2.20, I'm crucified with Christ, nevertheless, not I, but Christ lives in me. That's the gospel. So marriage and human sexuality points to the gospel, but it's also fueled by the gospel. That's why when I do premarital counseling with Becky and other couples, and often up in the wedding ceremony, I will talk about the fact that we have two in front of us who are filled with the Holy Spirit, gives them a power the world just can't understand to go through the seasons of marriage and stay committed to each other. All right, let's bottom line this, then gets to our summons. Let me pull this together. Ladies and gentlemen, young people, the reason sexual pleasure outside of marriage is so wrong is because sexual pleasure within marriage is so right. That is why it's so wrong outside that context. Sexual intimacy as God designed and created it is powerful and it is holy and it is majestic and it is glorious and it is amazing, and it is mysterious. And our problem is that we live in a culture that not only doesn't believe that, but is now going the other direction in a direct assault and rebellion against what God has said, and it's 24-7, 365, nonstop against us constantly. And it's why so many have settled for counterfeits, casual sex, adultery, some here this morning are involved in adultery. Some of you are engaged in premarital sex, homosexuality, pornography. Likely a number of us here this morning are dabbling in pornography. Ladies and gentlemen, young people, listen. Those are hollow substitutes. They not only will leave you with guilt, they only will not satisfy. They will leave you with remorse, and there are many dangers, including physical dangers. Politico, which is a left-leaning political journal, paper, reported just recently that the CDC, Center for Disease Control, is telling us that in 2021, sexually transmitted diseases skyrocketed in a way that they have not for over half a century in America. In fact, 
The CDC tells us last year that syphilis, one of the most dangerous sexually transmitted diseases, is up over 70%, higher than it has been in over half a century because of the moral revolution, because of COVID, because of all kinds of things, and our culture going insane on sexuality and just ignoring what God has said. You can't keep ignoring what God has said without dangerous ramifications and without dangerous things happening psychologically, spiritually, and emotionally. What's missing, interestingly, in the political report is that they treat, this is interesting, you got to, it's reading between the lines, they treat sexually transmitted disease as simply a medical dilemma. Like, golly wally, we don't know how people get this. It's just sad that all these sexually transmitted diseases are just floating around out there and people get them. There are occasionally random victims that get them. We know that. But for the most part, we know they are related to sexual behavior and there wasn't a hint in the report from Politico or the CDC to suggest that human beings just might want to consider changing their sexual behavior. Same thing with monkeypox. It's almost taboo to say this is primarily restricted to the male homosexual community. It's those kinds of deceptions that just keep going out again and again and again. All right, a couple summons this morning. And these are important. I have four of them as we land the plane. Number one, If you have sinned sexually or are in the midst of sinning sexually, I had a young man this this morning, first service, came to me to confess. And I said, let's do lunch. Let's talk about it. And he was very tender, very broken. If that describes you this morning and you're struggling with sexual sin, there is forgiveness and healing in the gospel. 1 John 1, 9, if we will confess our sins, he is faithful. Hear this. Faithful and just to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The Bible says if we will turn from our sins, trust in Jesus, we will be forgiven. Whether we're coming to Christ for the very first time or returning in repentance and fear of the gospel. Secondly, if you're married, we are to work at and celebrate sexual intimacy in our marriage, which will change over the years, by the way. But far too many married couples settle for routine sex life, and I think that's a sin. That's not the way God designed it to be, no matter what our age. Sure, it's going to change over the seasons, but that doesn't mean that we don't keep working at it. Sexual intimacy is a very precious gift from God, and we dare not just ignore it or pretend like, well, that season's all past. I would highly encourage you, if you're going to get one book on this subject, get a book by Kevin Lehman, Sheet Music. We use it in premarital counseling here, especially, we we try to tell couples, uh, before your wedding night, don't read past chapter four. Now you're all going to go out and read past chapter four, but don't read past chapter four. But the book is a very good treatment. It's an appropriate treatment. It's a candid treatment, but it's a biblical treatment of sexual intimacy and celebrating it in marriage. Thirdly, We need to be teaching our children when age appropriate, it's key, about God's design for sex. Obviously, we need to do it at the right age, but we need to be teaching our kids what God has said and why he has said it and the benefits of sexual purity and the dangers of sexual sin. 
Not enough of us. Dads, not enough of us are warning our kids and teaching them the beauty of what God has said and the dangers of why the boundaries have been put in place. And lastly, to those this morning fighting sexual temptation and you feel like you're losing, I know some are fighting against pornography here today or you're involved in sex outside of marriage. Look it. The best way to fight sexual sin and sexual temptation are with promises from God's word. That means, let me, just, let me go a step further. What's this look like? You say, you know, like, meaning what? Okay, next time you're tempted to have sex with your boyfriend or girlfriend or look at pornography or go to a website, you know you shouldn't. Or maybe even you're considering having an adulterous affair. The next time we are being tempted and tugged in that direction and we're trying to figure out what to do, we need to turn to Scripture and use it in this kind of a way. We need to chew on something like Philippians 4.89 and read that if we think about what is pure, we will have peace with God. And we need to meditate, not just say it once, we need to meditate on passages like Psalm 84.11. God withholds no good thing from those who walk uprightly. Do you want good things from God? Walk uprightly. Or we need to dwell on Matthew 5, 8. I love this one. Blessed are the pure in heart. Why? They are the ones who see God. You want to see God? Be pure in heart. And here's what happens as you chew on gospel promises and do what the Puritans say, meditate. That means chewing on it over and over. If you have to, putting cards in front of you and reciting it over and over. But here's what happens. As I begin to chew on God's word and his promises, the word of God begins to cut through the fog and the deception of sexual sin. It has a way of slicing through the fog and deception of sexual sin and it begins to quiet down. And the word of God begins to restore sanity to me and gives me fresh hope and strength to pursue joy once again. That is the power of gospel promises to combat any sin we're facing, but today's context, especially sexual sin. Father, we thank you for the gift of sex and sexuality and that you not only created it, you go out of your way to tell us you created it and designed it, that it's beautiful, that it's holy, that it's right and righteous, that it's enjoyable, and that there's something incredibly healthy about a husband and wife who have a healthy sex life. Healthy physically, spiritually, emotionally, psychologically. I pray for marriages here today. Father, I just pray over them as pastor here that you would bring healing where it is needed on marriages that are healthy, that you would continue to help them flourish I pray for those involved in sexual sin here today, Father, that you would bring first conviction of that sin and make them miserable. If they're already there, that you would give them a lifeline, that they would hang on to gospel promises, begin to chew on them. Father, pull them out of the swamp, that they would see joy and healing. We thank you that you have spoken so clearly about sexuality in the scriptures. We know it's under direct attack every day in our culture. 
Help us to bear light and witness well to it. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.